I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Spencer Sunshine and Isaac join us to discuss their recent Unicorn Riot article entitled Nazis of Keller, which deals with the strange and troubling phenomena of persons of Keller who ascribe to Nazi ideology. This piece came about after the Texas mall shooting earlier this year, which was perpetrated by Mauricio Garcia, a Latino who identified as a neo-Nazi. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Spencer Sunshine and Isaac. Welcome to Parallax Views, Spencer Sunshine and Isaac authors of the recent July 12th, 2023 Unicorn Riot uh, expose about Nazis of Keller. Uh, how are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. And thank you for inviting us, by the way. So this expose that you guys wrote uh, came on the hills of uh, this figure, uh, Mauricio Garcia killing eight people in an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, uh, for people that may have been living under a rock when this happened in May. Uh, can you just give some details on this? I don't know if you want to start, Isaac, or or Spencer. Uh, yeah, why don't you go, Spencer, and then I'll just chime in, or you know, if there's anything that I feel like adding, then I will. So. Sure. Well, I mean, at least the news reports didn't seem to... Um, portray this as anything really special. I mean, we've all gotten a nerd to these 
mass murders, random mass murders in different places in the U.S. and schools and concerts. So at first it just seemed like another one of these of some, you know, distraught person, some person competing with these other, you get people who compete with the other mass murderers. Um, and so that was just my first impression was really like business as usual in America, as as hard as that is to say. And then... And, and and, and what, Go on. Sorry, and and what's interesting about when that happened, when when uh, when what he posted uh, started coming up, and his uh, swastika tattoos and so on, the extreme right wingers in this country were trying to deflect from that by saying, "Oh yeah, but there's no way that this guy could be a Nazi. He's a Mexican gang member, and blah blah blah." So, um, you know that, and 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 obviously this is like their their modus operandi. Anytime there is, uh, there is any kind of a extreme right wing terrorist, they're always trying to uh, deflect from that because they know that it's going to come back on them in one way or another. Spencer, maybe you could uh, get into that a little bit more because how did we come to find out this this dude was espousing essentially national socialist ideology, uh, even though he's from a Latino background? And how do you? approach this issue when people, I think people hear national socialist and Latino and they think that's not possible, uh, but that's sort of what, you know, your article is about. So, I mean, how did we first figure out that this guy was espousing this ideology? And then, you know, how, how do you sort of ease people into understanding uh, how someone from that background, a person of Keller could become, uh, you know, essentially a neo-Nazi? Sure. So I think the first you know, when these murders happen, people immediately jump on, find the person's social media and start trolling through it. And I think um, uh, investigator Bellingcat was the first one at least to produce something comprehensive and showed um, it, he had, the murderer had uh, gotten tattoos of SS recently, it looked like, or at least the photos were of recent tattoos of SS bolts and a swastika. And then all kinds of also um, commentary you know, in his blogs, in his online writings that were, you know, various kinds of bigotry. So it was clear this wasn't just an isolate, wasn't just like a symbol in isolation from some sort of other views. Um, and then this created, uh, kind of like Isaac said, he just addressed part of it, like an immediate pushback, um, you know, people denying it, um, some kind of confusion, uh, or if you ask me, people really misreading the situation, you know, like, oh, he's just like a confused person. He doesn't he doesn't understand what Nazism is or something or um, so uh, it is difficult to explain to people. But uh, a number of us, anyone who's a anti-fascist researcher for any kind of time, people in the skinhead scene, people in the larger punk scene in certain cities, um, are familiar with this phenomenon because especially in the United States, there's a, um, in some places, sizable, but certainly visible Latino neo-Nazi scene. Um, also, there's various instances of black and other neo-Nazis running around that anti-fascist researchers will run into, and in a larger way, a long history in different countries around the world. And so sometimes I find it easier to explain the other countries um, and then people can nod their heads and be like, well, that same dynamic is happening in the United States. And in some cases, we believe that organizers or uh, neo-Nazis from Latin America in particular are emigrating to the United States. Like that uh, seems to be a real possibility in trying to set up shop here. 
Um, so sometimes I feel like the easiest is explain other countries is well documented in like Mon crazy places like Mongolia or something where you wouldn't expect it. Latin America, people are like, oh yeah, there are Nazis in Latin America. And then you've eased them into the concept first. So also maybe another area we can explore. You start out the unicorn riot piece talking about uh there's a whole section, I should say entitled white supremacy versus fascist versus Nazi versus neo-Nazi versus national socialist. Are there distinctions to be made with all these terms? Um, yeah, and I feel like it's easier for somebody in the United States to grasp, if you say someone's a white supremacist and you say someone's a Nazi, people often use the same, but I think people do at the end of the day understand there can be some kind of difference. And it that's why the article isn't about people of color who are white supremacists, although they do exist and they are mentioned in the article, even cases of black people who are white supremacists. One guy who um, moved to Ghana, I believe, uh, an American who became so convinced by these ideas, he left the country. Um, and so uh, there, there is a difference. Like people, people collapse all these ideas in the United States. They collapse all these ideas into one idea of white supremacy. And then you have to untangle them. Like you, you have to be like fascists, for example, aren't necessarily about race. Like when Mussolini started, it was not a racist movement. It was a nationalist movement and it wasn't an anti-Semitic movement at first. So there is a reason to untangle all this stuff because the number of people of color who are neo-Nazis is far larger than the number of people of color who are white supremacists, I would guess. Or committed ideological white supremacists, not like have some kind of ideas or have some just like anti-blackness or something. Anti-blackness, for example, is found all over all over the spectrum. And so are homophobia and anti-misogynistic you know, views. These other ones are obviously found amongst all different kinds of people of all different ethnic and racial backgrounds without, I think, any kind of contradiction. And we should be clear too. Um, uh, not, not. So I'll let you go, Isaac, after this. But you, you're this article is dealing very specifically with, you know, uh, Nazis and Keller. So you're not, you're sort of not dealing necessarily even with like these. I guess they've been called alt light groups, and you know the figures like Enrique Tario of the Proud Boys and Ali Alexander, who you know they're, they're bad in and of themselves. But you're talking mm -hmm. about the farthest, most explicit end of the far right uh, in this article. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. So if we were talking about merely far right, you know, Latinos in particular, that would be a lot of people. Isaac, Isaac did you want to add something or? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and just like Spencer pointed out, that, that would never end then. Um, because the thing is, particularly in the area of the country where I'm at, which is in South Florida, uh, you know, the particularly the Cuban community, and uh, especially those that uh, migrated after the Cuban Revolution and their direct descendants, have always been right wing uh, to various levels. As a matter of fact, in um, in 1992, when uh, David Duke was running his failed campaign uh, for, in the Republican primaries, he actually went to Miami, and he was hosted by a fascist Cuban group that was um, espousing anti-Semitic views. And then even uh, David Duke was like, well, you know, I don't agree with that, but we do agree that we have to be against communism and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so, so this kind of stuff of there being, um, um, I mean, that group was not, a, was not a, an explicitly Nazi group, it was fascist, but that has always existed in Latin America and will always exist because um, as I've told Spencer before, Latin America is pretty much the whole world. You know, all the races are in Latin America. And, you know, and obviously the 
the Spanish colonial system was a very uh, ratified, uh, let's say, pyramid in which, you know, the, the Spaniards, they were the ones on top and then everybody else uh, was at the bottom according to the color. So then when we're talking about these Nazis of Keller, I mean, I guess a lot of people will say, well, isn't this like a, a minority? It's a fringe. It's not, you know, there, there's obviously more uh, like white supremacists uh, that are neo-Nazis rather than, you know, people of Keller that are Nazis. So I guess what people are probably thinking listening to this is, well, this is so fringe. What What's the significance of it? Like what? Why write an expose about something this fringe? I mean, I, I think it's an important expose, but. Well, I mean, it's not fringe if you're in certain circles. Like as, as uh, I kind of start the piece, I met a black neo-Nazi who was literally spying on anti-fascists and giving that information back to a neo-Nazi party. Um, you know, there is in New York and a lot of my experience uh, is that there is a uh, a skinhead, skinheads and punks in a gang there called B49 who've caused, ton, you know, immense problems there. We believe the core of the group are neo-Nazis and it's a little softer on the edges. They've attacked people. They've hospitalized people. They've um, disrupted a bunch of dynamics. Um, clearly, this, uh, you know, non-white national socialists are much bigger around the world. Um, there are thousands and thousands of them. I believe they're just as dangerous as white neo-Nazis, you know, I mean, no matter where they are, though certainly as dangerous to anyone, you know, I, I doubt they would attack white people and they probably wouldn't attack people of their own racial background, but anyone else seems to be fair game, like even people who are other people of color, but belong to a different group. Um, so they're very, they're very present and, um, it, the movement may grow, I believe, as Latinos in the United States move further to the right. I, I was um, going to say not to interrupt you, but I think go ahead. one of the biggest, you know, young neo-Nazi leaders today is, you know, Nick Fuentes, who mm -hmm. la, Latino, right? Yeah. So, I mean, some of this is uh, some of the maybe larger reason for this. I mean, I think it's important on its own be simply because you will run into these people and, and there's confusion about them. And the left needs to think in particular, anti-fascists need to think. Normal people who don't like Nazis think clearly about these things and not like spend all this time being confused. Um, but uh, the uh, Americans and the Americans in general, are, I think, are confused. There's weird stuff about race in our country where everyone from Latin America um, is considered a person of color, basically, even though many people in Latin America are just as white in terms of European background as white Americans, as Europeans, as South Americans, you know, it's it's actually something a little strange that they would they are considered not white in the United States. There's a census distinction here, although in everyday terms, we collapse and there's white Latino and non-white Latino. Um, and so some of this, I think, and I don't know what Fuentes' exact background are. There's quite a number of figures like this, like uh, Joseph Jordan, a.k.a. Eric Stryker. That's Eric Stryker, like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if his family is like Latin American white or not. They may or may not be. But so this is more confusion. Sometimes we're like, how can there be a Latino neo-Nazi? Well, they may be white or they would be white in Latin America or they may, you know, or they may not be. So there's all there's all kinds of confusion there, I think. The second is, I think, on the left people have this idea that people focused on race on the left, that people of color are good 
and white or whiteness is is generally like it's almost a competition between racial groups. It's it's a it's that's the primary contradiction in the old Marxist language. And they just can't get their hands more generally, not saying neo-Nazis, the fact that there's a left and a right in both racial groups. And they don't want to acknowledge a right wing in non-white groups. And this occurs both between white and, you know, scholars and analysts for both white and people of color, like because they want to have this sort of racialized conflict. And it breaks up that idea to recognize there is a Latino right and a left. There is a black right and a left. I used to be associated with this think tank called Political Research Associates, and one of their first and most contentious articles was on black conservatives. Like people just couldn't get their mind. We're more familiar now with Clarence Thomas and stuff as I think maybe when he first went on the Supreme Court, people couldn't get their minds around it. You know, but there are black right wingers. I don't like it's not. But this disrupts how a lot of people on the left think about race. And that's I don't want to say this why we wrote the article. It's certainly not. But um, it, it it raises this issue. And there are a lot of people in the Latino political scene who are, I mean, I had the guy from Latino Rebels was like, oh my God, someone's finally said this. Like people won't listen. We have fascists in our community and we have to fight them. You can't just give them a pass. And and, and then the other thing is also, um, yes, it is definitely a fringe group and, and it will probably always remain a fringe group both here and also in Latin America. Um, but the thing is, it, you know, in Latin America, it's easy for uh, people who might not know absolutely anything about, you know, the evils of, of uh, Nazi Germany and those kind of regimes. But since there is quite a substantial number of people in Latin America that are um, very much in support of uh, Gaudilloism and, and very much authoritarian forms of leadership, that they would look to um, people that would be influenced by, by something like that. You know, people like Pinochet, uh, people like Bolsonaro, people like Fujimori, and on and on. And so then those kinds of people would be drawn to something like this. And so they would completely overlook any kind of evil um, of those regimes because uh, ultimately what they would support more would be the anti-communist and the anti-LGBT, um, the uh, overt sexism, um, the stratification of, of society and running society along like militaristic lines. They look favorably upon that. So, you know, it's not outlandish to see copies of Mein Kampf everywhere in Latin America in Spanish. I mean, I've seen it in Mexico. I've seen it in Peru. It's all over the place. So... Even though it's a, it, they're minute groups, doesn't mean that there is not a way for them to form, um, to be able to get larger acceptance in society. You know, I mean, uh, somebody like Bolsonaro is not a, you know, he's not an Nazi, but at one point he was a, a very fringe kind of figure. So it only takes um, certain uh, uh, happenings in society for someone of an authoritarian, extreme right mind frame to come to power. And I think in Latin America, they're they're backed by neo-Nazis on the ground. I mean, this is definitely something we heard in Brazil, which is having some kind of wild explosion of neo-Nazis, white supremacists, third position fascists, like all kinds of things that they would attack leftists. And so we create creates a problem there, especially with there are more of them where Nazis are attacking these leftist anarchists and related projects. And it becomes also, you know, even if they're not going to seize power, like I don't think Nazis are going to seize power in the US, but we saw like during Trump, they can be part of a larger far right movement and they can be very, they can, they're more likely to use extreme violence, you know, murderous violence against their opponents too, than I think most far right people are, at least in the United States. But they, they can um, almost act as, as the sort of shock troops in a way. 
Yeah, not directly. I think they're rarely, I can't speak for all places in Latin America, rarely that's like direct, like they're directed, but they do act like that at the end of the day. They're the most aggressive and most violent, always most aggressive and most violent factions. So it sounds like based on what you were saying, Isaac, and also uh, what I've read from this article that, you know, in Latin America, sometimes the themes that Latin American neo-Nazis deal with involve sort of downplaying race, but you know, still pushing uh, authoritarianism and hierarchy, whether it's anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQ, misogyny, anti-feminism. Could you explain that a little bit more in depth if possible? Sure, absolutely. Because these are threads that have always been uh, running through Latin American society, you know, pre-World War I, pre-World War II. um, you know, obviously, those were times in which the Catholic Church had a lot of power, and of course, um, a lot of uh, clerics in the Catholic Church were very much anti-Semitic. Um, but I, I feel that in Latin America, they don't really part too much on anti-Semitism, because the thing is, except in a couple of countries like Argentina or Uruguay, where there may be more, and uh, Brazil, where there may be uh, more, a more substantial Jewish population. In the majority of Latin America, there is not that many. So um, so harping too much on that would not be too much of a winner for them. But where they feel that they can get more people is definitely by being um, extremely anti-communist. Now, and also in some countries, such as in uh, Colombia, the, um, the Nazi boneheads, because, uh, you know, in the skinhead subculture, we call them boneheads because there aren't, they're not real skinheads. You know, real, real skinheads come from the mixture of the Jamaican rude boy subculture and uh, and the hard mods, you know? Um, but uh, Colombian boneheads, now they're actively engaging in xenophobia against Venezuelan immigrants. Um, and obviously, you know, one, one of their large uh, motivating factors was, is always going to be fighting against the left, you know? And so through that, some of them have actually like military training, police training, or they're like family members of uh, people in, um, that are high ranking military officials, so they do have these links that allow them to develop into something that's more organized. I would like to I would like to also add that I mean we said I mean I don't think either of us think that there's going to be an immense amount of neo Nazis or people of color in the United States, but I do believe, and I I I believe that that number is going to expand, and we are worried that we were very worried about this before Trump things shifted in a certain direction that. Um, non-white neo-Nazis uh, can form alliances with white neo-Nazis um, and then work together if if separately. They're going to they're going to have more in common than I'm going to have in common with a, a white neo-Nazi. I'm just and we've seen this happens in other countries, too. And so we are worried or I am worried and others that there will be a multiracial fascism in the United States and there'll be like a force multiplier. Right. Well, if you got 20 people, OK, but if you've got two groups of 20 people, they can do a lot more. 40 people can do a lot more damage than 20 people can. I wanted to get into that next because I know in the article you deal with how, you know, even these like forums like Stormfront will apparently allow, uh, you know, um, non-whites to be supporters or or whatever. Um, so how do they sort of reconcile that? Like, what? how, how could there be this sort of, I, for lack of a better term, multicultural coalition? How do they get past the race issue? Some of them just want money and platforms. I mean, it's actually a thing amongst national socialists that like ethics don't matter. 
and it's the end justifies the means. They're very explicit about this, actually. So they're like, cool, you want to help us? Like James Mason, who's the foremost neo-Nazi terrorist ideologue, he's very open. He's like, Jews want to help me? I'll take their help. Gay men want to help me? And he has historically want to help me. That's great. I'm happy to take their help. You know, it's going to fuck them in the end, but that's not his problem. Um, and others, I think that they um, that they look favorably on there being a right wing shift within non-white communities. You know, they I think like it that Latinos some, you know, on the far right of Latinos are homophobic and misogynistic and such like and maybe ultimately and a lot of Nazis in the US want to break the country up into racially separate areas. You'll see these maps all the time. And so I think they hope maybe the US can be broken up into different fascist or national socialist uh, racially based uh, sections. It'll be a white national socialism and a black national socialism. I think they'd love it. Real quick, too, since you mentioned at the beginning, and I know there's going to be people that raise an eyebrow to it or are confused by it. You, you mentioned national socialism um, not being based necessarily on uh, whiteness originally. And uh, maybe you could explain that more and how definitions have changed over time, especially, I guess, when uh, George Lincoln Rockwell comes around and it really becomes, you know, this thing of whiteness. Right. Um so Hitler believed in Aryan supremacy. I think most people know this, but Aryans are not white. Um, Aryans are a specific kind of European peoples. And even um, in the Aryan mythos, I mean, there are no Aryans. There aren't, the race is all, this is all like 19th, early 20th century, like uh, de debunked racial, quote, science. Um Aryans uh, migrated, they uh, originated in the, it's an old uh, linguistic idea, uh, my, uh, originated in the Indus Valley. Um, I think it used to be India, it might be in Bangladesh now. Uh, went into Iran and then went into Europe. Uh, some some pull the Aryans back to Tibet and the really kooky ones say the aliens came down, were descend, Aryans are descended from aliens, put their genes into Tibetans and then it went into Indus, Iran. Anyway, so um, Aryan isn't white. Uh, Hitler, um, you know, hated Slavs. And so Russian troops who were captured, uh, you know, were sub subjected to war crimes, were massacred, were used in these experiments, just like many other uh, people who are imprisoned, Jews, Rom you know, Romani and others who were imprisoned in the in the camps were subjected to these to these conditions. Um, so it, it was a post-war adaption that Aryan became white. Uh, and this was credited with uh, George Lincoln Rockwell coming up with this idea. He founded the American Nazi Party. It was the first explicit and somewhat popular or visible uh, Nazi neo-Nazi party in the U.S. after the war. Um, you know, you can imagine Nazis had sort of gone who were fairly public and visible before the war, went away during the war. A lot of them were arrested for sedition. And it, it took a number of years. The American Nazi Party doesn't found until 1959 to sort of come back up. And then he he was very he was very savvy. He's not given the credit that he's savvy for. Um, uh, wanted to sort of he was like, how do I make this more popular? And he was like, we have to delink this from Germany. People then especially um, equated Nazis in Germany, neo Nazis in Germany. He'd say even in the seventies, people would ask neo Nazis, they're like, so are you a German thing? And they'd be like, no, we're from America. So this was part of his attempt to make it more popular, to fit it, to Americanize 
uh, national socialism. And so if you ask me, I think everyone else has just done the same. If they want to turn the master race into Latino or Mongolian or even black or, or whatever it is, it's it's no more a contradiction than the idea of white being the master race of neo of national socialism after the war. Like they're all just reinventions. They're all just reinterpretations. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got disconnected for a bit because uh, I was on the train. I don't know if um, y'all got to hear the what I said. No? no, no. What was that? Oh no. Well, I was actually uh, mentioning something that um, uh, Spencer had mentioned that sometimes it's it's these kind of um, far right figures they they don't mind aligning with people of an, of another race so that they can get more notor more notoriety. And um, as a as a matter of fact, this has been very occurring quite frequently with people in the European far right. Um, there's an Italian neo-fascist group called Casa Pound that's been very successful in organizing a lot of young people in Italy, um, you know, along the usual, you know, fascist, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBT, you know, anti-left lines. And so they've made a group called the European Solidarity Front for Syria, um, in which they post propaganda all over Europe and march in favor of the Syrian regime and the Iranian regime. And, um, and they've even been to Syria and been on Syrian TV a number of times and met with officials. So this benefits them both because it benefits the Assad regime in um, making it seem like it's got international support and it benefits the cash so that they can have, um, they can make it seem like they're not, you know, racist, but, uh, uh, and that they actually have uh, information and recognition. Yeah, a lot of neo-Nazis and white supremacists will ally in public situations with people of color in order to be like, I'm not a racist, which is really bizarre, but they they will use anything. Again, like they attack the notion of ethics and they will use anything to help them. And if dissuading, the, you know, pushing away the racist label helps them, they'll do it. I mean, one one group, even said we're not Nazis. We're we're national socialists. We're not Nazis. And you're like, what are you? But it, they would go that far to attempt to like avoid the negative connotations of the label. And 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 as a matter of fact, I think we we uh, touched that uh, a little bit on the on the article about that there was former um, SS uh, um, SS members that actually went on to advise the you know regimes in Syria and and Egypt and Libya and so on. So this is not something that's new. They were also members of at least the Wehrmacht. Hitler gave this uh, made a number of people honorary Aryans, including people of mixed Jewish background and people who are not white. And so there, there also is a lineage that Nazis can appeal to that there were non-white people who are part of the National Socialist regime. That's just true. It's interesting because I feel like this uh, piece you wrote is relevant in light of a few things that have been happening recently, right? Like not just. Um, the Garcia case that we were talking about earlier, but also, you know, Kanye West coming out saying, you know, I love Hitler or I'm a Nazi. And then uh, even even this most recent thing, we're recording this on uh, the 7th of August. And, uh, you know, it just came out this uh, so-called rising right wing star. Uh, Richard Hanania has been out as, you know, writing, you know, neo-Nazi comments on um the UNS Review blog and these other alt-right websites. And it's interesting because uh, I think he would he has said in other places that 
most people wouldn't see him as white. I don't know what exactly his background is, um, but it's just interesting. It seems like we're seeing more and more of these cases of people that wouldn't be traditionally defined as white uh, being out. Uh, that's totally true. I think the way we should think about them, maybe I'm skipping to the end, is not worry about what their racial background is. I mean, race and ethnic group, all these are made up uh, and fluid ideas anyway. Let's look at what they say and how they act. I mean, if they want to support white supremacy, if they want to support Nazism, I take them at their word. They're white supremacists and Nazis. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have to get all in a jumble to figure this out. I mean, this is very clear with the Latino boneheads. Like, you can sit there and worry about like how you think that they can come to those ideas, but when they attack you, it's just another Nazi attacking you. I mean, that's that's a Daryl Lamont Jenkins has pushed this. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Do you want to add to that at all, Isaac? No, and and uh, talking specifically about the boneheads in in Latin America. Um, so, like I said before, they they. Yeah, anti-Semitism is, of course, a, a large part of their uh, of their ideology. But in order to get members, they use uh, you know, especially anti-last, anti-LGBT, uh, um, being uh, you know, extremely against immigrants. But also an, uh, another aspect that they're um, uh, that they're really harping on is also um, uh, that I think I'll, uh, I think for at least a few of them, because there has actually been you know strange cases of people in Latin America, in Mexico, and in some other countries that were formerly anti-fascist and now they're fascist and now they're right wingers, is because a lot of them are also doing it for fashion. You know, they're they're aping um, European uh, neo-Nazi fascists and adapting it to their countries um, by claiming to be you know extreme nationalists. But if they're so nationalist, then how come? You know, they're never saying anything about uh, multinational corporations that are um, acting in detriment of the of the people of Latin America, you know? So... I think there's also a lot of people, white Americans that we call neo-Nazis, who are, you know, really, at the end of the day, only sort of neo-Nazis, right? They're white supremacists who maybe use a swastika or just some other kind of right-winger. They're members of these prison gangs for whom maybe they have a swastika tattoo, but it doesn't go beyond that. They're really like you'll often see a white supremacist, you know, arrested for murder or stuff. But a lot of these are just prison, you know, prison gangs. They, now a lot of the gangs are inside and outside, like killing someone else in some internal beef or over some drug deal. So even even when we say neo-Nazi in America to apply to white people, there's a lot of just fringe people who aren't particularly tied to that idea, right? And then the same thing that happens with people of color. But yeah, we still consider the white people neo-Nazis without twisting our, our hands about it, right? I, I was interested to um, go on, Isaac. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just uh, affirming that point that, yeah, that, that, that's correct. You know, that yeah, just, just because necessarily they're more of a performative, let's say, it, it doesn't mean that they're tied into super ideological kinds of movements, you know? So I know the article covers a number of different examples of Nazis from like various countries, whether we're talking about the Asian Pacific Islands, um, uh, you know, black neo-Nazis, et cetera. But um, one of the things that comes up a lot is like Latinos uh, that get into this. What, what is like the historical reasons for that? Isaac, this is yours. The, 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 the historical reasons for them to get into that kind of movement? 
in the United States or in Latin America? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I want to I want to talk about the United States, but Lat let's start with Latin America. Okay. Well, in, in Latin America, it's it, it clearly because, as I mentioned before, um, uh, during um, colonialism, there was always a pyramid-like structure. Um, you know, it was almost like a caste system, or pretty much like a caste system. Um, so, so therefore, people that were not of the of the higher, you know, the quote unquote cast of like, you know, pure Spaniards, uh, they always felt that, um, you know, they were always de degraded. And so for some people, it may be that, um, that it's something to aspire to, you know? Um, so for example, if you just look on Latin American television, on, on Latin TV, even the United States from Latin America, at any moment, 80 or 90% of the people that you're going to see on that TV, do not reflect what the majority of Latin Americans look like. And that's because, you know, it's, it's always been that way, you know? Um, and so then I, I think that's one of the reasons um, why that occurs. And then another reason is, you know, because of, um, you know, the aforementioned anti-leftism, um, support for extreme authoritarian forms of, of power, or, um, you know, perhaps looking for, or a strong leader that will make things, you know, right in the country. Because if we're also looking at Latin America, we're looking at countries in which um, state structure and the national idea is very frail. Um, you know, countries are very disunited, very chaotic. And so there is always going to be a segment of people for whom nationalism is going to appear. And, and so therefore, within that segment, there is going to be people that are going to want that oh i think we lost isaac okay yeah let me just let me i wanted to add something to what he was saying anyways that uh and he alluded and briefly touched on these things in latin america some of the neo-nazis are just see themselves as nationalists like so they're not racial based they're national based even though there's you know usually a, an underlying racial base to this um and then in latin america the groups divide into two those who basically see themselves and, and white americans or most americans would see them both as people of color as latinos but there they divide between the white neo-nazi groups and the mestizo neo-nazi groups and there's a couple instances of indigenous neo-nazis but that's a very unusual thing and so the latin american groups are dividing usually down the middle around this. So though it's very hard from an American perspective, I didn't mention this in the article to divide which one is which. Like when I hear hammerskins are in Brazil, I'm not quite sure if they're the white hammerskins or mestizo hammerskins. Um, but I, I, it's true that there are both kinds of groups, I think, in most Latin American countries. I think that's an important point you brought up too, because um, I think I said earlier that the way you describe in the article, um, these Latin American neo-Nazis is that they downplay race it's not so much even that they downplay race but they downplay race like a form of their national identification i guess but they're still extremely racist i mean they they hate immigrants etc cetera, etc cetera. right it's very easy i mean most or many white supremacists and neo-nazis who want to do outreach in america sort of downplay it too right you know it's like we're against black crime we're not against all black people we're against immigration or illegal immigration even we're not against you know, Latinos or even legal Latinos. So, I mean, obviously what you're leading with tends to be softer if you're very extreme and you're trying to pull more people in, um, you know, even if behind that is a kind of racism and, and, and even like almost all groups will allow exceptions into their ranks, you know, 
Um, anarchists will allow certain exceptions of people who are social democrats, right? Who otherwise are like, no, no, we're not into the state, except that guy. He's real cool. You know, he does good work. We'll let him in or, or whatever. So all groups also have their exceptions in it, you know, the right people or whatever. Do you think one of the, I mean, I don't know if this is why you and Isaac wrote the article, but I think this has been on a lot of people's minds as we see, I mean, you refer to it in, in the Unicorn Riot pieces, the sort of increasing right-wing shift among UF, U.S. Latinos. And, you know, the far right is becoming, I mean, it's I, I, it's a mainstream actor in U.S. politics at this point. Uh, can you just comment on that and the importance of understanding uh, this sort of shift and also the fact that the far right's position is mainstream, you know, at least politically with the right wing in America? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know now. I mean, it seemed that the, when Trump was elected, maybe it was just him and he was a singular figure. He hadn't built up uh, a large, you know, group of supporters inside the Republican Party of bureaucrats or other electeds. But it's it's clear that, you know, horse is out of the barn now. It's a big movement. And it, it you know, DeSantis is the the second, you know, uh, runner, it looked runner up in the primary right now. I mean, the, the far right has captured the Republican Party. And as that continues, it there will always be in any big mass movement a militant end of it. You know, that's just how mass movements work. And so as the far right has gained uh, supporters, widespread support amongst the Latino Americans and and also amongst Native Americans, one exit poll showed that a third of Native Americans voted for Trump, um, which makes more sense if you understand how how many people are veterans and Native Americans and the Native Americans can be quite conservative and religious Christian. Um, but so as this gains uh, support across, we expect a white people of far right that there'll be militant people and there'll be neo-Nazis at the end of it. Like that same dynamic is going to happen elsewhere too. Like w- whether they call themselves neo-Nazis too or something else, like there will be the most militant end of the Latino far right. And as far as uh, why people of Latin American descent might be uh, interested in that in Latin America, I mean, in the U.S. or get into that into Latin America, I think it's all it's multifaceted because I think a part of it is that they already come from a conservative um, mind frame, you know, starting with their families. So, I mean, there you know, there are people that even though they migrate, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a change of outlook in the way that they've always been. You know, you, so, you're um, saying this with uh, specifically with uh, maybe Latinos in the U.S. that are drawn towards this sort of ideology. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I think and I, that's one that's one aspect of it already having those those viewpoints. And then I think that the other aspect may be trying to fit into. Um, and as a matter of fact, this guy Garcia, he he alluded to that on some of his postings that um, I think he I think he put like some kind of graphic that said, well, which way is going to be the way for like the Latino man in the United States? Is it going to be towards like um, white power or is it going to be to like um to like the black race or something like that. So right. some of them might be drawn to that because of uh, aspiring and wanting to join what they perceive as like the dominant um, racial group in the US. But I wanna say there's all kinds of different opinions or ways to conceive this among American neo-Nazis. Like at the same time, the Allen murderer also posted pictures of Latin American neo-Nazi groups. You know, implying that he knew it wasn't a contradiction to be a Latino neo-Nazi. And another group here that I mentioned before, like in their statement, they're like, we're, and I think this is the same in Latin America, 
we're a mixture of Europeans and indigenous people. And so these are like the two master races and we're the best of both worlds. So there's, I think, a variety of different ways that in the United States, non-white neo-Nazis see themselves or see their relationship to white white supremacists or white neo-Nazis. I was going to say, it sounds like some of them have maybe a self-hatred. Uh, Absolutely, but others don't. some do. Others yeah. don't, though, either. So it it can get messy, I guess. It can get, I mean, we try to explain this very carefully in the article. And you ask again why we wrote it. There are other articles, I didn't think they're very good by and large, about this phenomenon. So it's not the other one, but it just, it was originally supposed to be a thousand words. And it ended up at 5,000 because it, it had to be, I felt like, and I think Isaac agrees, I, I first interviewed him and then I was like, well, we're really co-authors on this. Um, it had to be parsed out very finely because people just didn't have an idea the first hand. And the second is it's really quite complicated about the different ways they see themselves, about what race is in Latin America, about how America, what race is in America, how American see race in Latin, you know, there's all these different things you have to kind of get your head around. So so some of the reason we wrote it or the, the reason it's that long was to really try to like get into the nitty gritty and to tease out all of these different and sometimes contradictory things. And, and, and mind you, you know, that's, that's getting a good grasp of it, but there's still so much more. I mean, just Brazil on its own has at least six or seven different varieties of extreme right-wingers. So, and, and they don't necessarily see eye to eye on many things. So, um, you know, the same thing goes for some other countries where there is always going to be a larger extreme right presence, like countries like Chile, countries like Mexico, um, even in Colombia, you know, just just in Bogota alone, there's at least three or four different Nazi bonehead groups. So, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's never going to end. And even though it's not going to grow that much and the great majority of people in Latin America don't know about this and. You know, and honestly, probably the great majority of people over there wouldn't even care because the thing is, like, they're much more um, uh, occupied, you know, with things as, the, you know, lack of employment, crime, um, you know, issues of government repression, uh, land reform, and so many other things that are happening in Latin America day to day that this is only like a footnote of uh, in Latin American history. But, you know, it, it is happening and it is uh, influential in a negative way for a certain segment of the population. One thing I, I wanted to go back to, um, and Isaac, you can comment on this if you want. Um, but we we were talking about just the rightward shift of Latinos in the U.S. and also just how you know the far right in the U.S. has become a legitimate political force. It wasn't just a fluke with Trump. I mean, Spencer, you were mentioning Ron DeSantis. I mean, it's DeSantis, even someone like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, pushes these like far right wing, uh, you know, talking points. So, I mean, how do you feel about this shift that we're seeing in America um, when it comes to um, uh, the Latino population moving right? And also uh, just this general, you know, the far right in this country becoming a really legitimate political force. I mean, as as far as like uh, the rightward shift in the Republican Party, I think that this was something that was inevitable. I mean, you know, we could see this as far as like, you know, with the John Birch Society uh, when they were um, starting out in the 50s and saying that Eisenhower was a communist. That was their attempt of uh, throwing the Republican Party more and more to the far right instead of being just a party of like, um, 
you know, Northeast financiers. So then, um, you know, once once Goldwater um, became prominent, that that's basically like the ideological forefather of everything that's going on now. So, you know, I don't think that Republicans can really say, well, this is, you know, something that's uh, that doesn't have anything to do with our party or that, uh, you know, this is not what Reagan meant, meant it to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, there is a clear line. You know, we see a Goldwater, Nixon, afterwards, a certain aspect of Reaganism, um, you know, especially as far as uh, uh, the, the, the heavy um, attacks on people of color um, and also uh, um, anti-communism as well. So then Buchanan. Well, I, I was going to say, uh, not to interrupt you, but there's a there's a great Showtime documentary um, about Ronald and Nancy Reagan, just called The Reagans, that actually gets into how Ronald Reagan was like in bed with like the John Birchers or playing footsies with them at the very least um, when he was governor of California. So definitely. Yeah. Sure. I would I would also so, add to what Isaac said is that we need to look at and this is this guy is almost entirely overlooked, at least in our memory, a George Wallace, who is a segregationist candidate um, as a third party candidate, I believe in uh, if it was 60, if it was three times. I think he definitely ran in 68 and 72, and then he was shot. But um, he carried the five Southern states. He's done the best of any third party candidate in terms of actually winning um, the vote. And the Republicans reacted to this by absorbing all of his ideas. This was when the big shift was because the Democrats in the South had always been the segregationists. And then the Republicans were like, oh, we have to, as the segregationists lost in the party, they shifted. This was part of the shift. They voted for Wallace first. And then for the Republicans, he created his, the states he carried became the basis of what the Republicans is now known as the Southern strategy, where the Republicans consistently carry those states. And that was because they saw Wallace doing this. This was when the party switched. Wallace was the one that, that gave the famous segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever speech, right? Yes, this was, he yeah. was governor of Alabama. And this is when they were uh, desegregating one of the state universities. He gave this a speech in front of the doorway and then started running for president. But he showed on a national level that the racist vote could carry states, how big it was. And then the Republicans were like, well, we want that racist vote. So everything Isaac says is true, but we also have to see how the Republicans absorb these other elements, these racial elements that weren't necessarily in one party or another. Um, I read this real interesting article a while ago about the Klan, and they were like, one of the things the Klan did were like, you don't need to vote Democrat. You know, at a time that in the South, everything was democratic. They were like, vote racial. If that's a Republican, vote for the Republican. And um, so there's this idea, and you'll see it too, about our Republicans um, run as Democrats. They used to, racists, you know, Klan and Nazis used to run as Democrats in the 70s. And it was a switch, and I mostly would do to run as Republicans. So racists will vote whoever is there. I think racists in America are less uh, party affiliated. Like they are issue voters. And, 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 and you know, Spencer, single issue voters. What? Go ahead, Isaac. Oh, 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 yeah. Sorry. And and it's interesting that Spencer mentions that because, um, as a matter of fact, Tom Metzger, who's infamous for you know having been the one that uh, started the White Aryan Resistance, and um, you know, and, and for basically bringing a lot of these like third positionist kind of ideas into American Nazism, he was a uh, yeah, he was a Democrat, and he actually ran as a Democrat. And then I think he also tried to run as a Republican. So he was, um, you know, trying to be an entryist for, um, you know, for, for, for his extreme right wing uh, faction to see if he would be able to get more followers. So 
Uh, before we start closing out, I just have maybe one or two more questions. I, you said earlier, Spencer, that you think we could be seeing a sort of, um, I guess, multicultural fascism or d- different, you know, ethnic you know, groups. Multiracial yeah. fascism Multi- is what I yeah. think. I, I, yeah, my, my apologies. But, but what would that look like? Like, I mean, I don't know if you want to speculate on that. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, we were thinking this about this a lot before Trump because he changed the landscape of the far right. And I think it's shifting back. So um, let's, Isaac mentioned this. I want to talk a bit uh, that there's different kinds of fascism. And even within neo-Nazism, even within Nazism, even within the Nazi party, there were different factions. And sometimes people just see it as one thing, but there were environmentalists. Um, and sometimes those factions killed each other. Well, yes, early on. So I'll get to this. There were esoteric people around Hitler. There were the environmentalists around uh, Walther Dari, but there were also anti-capitalists around, well, originally around Otto Strasser, who was more anti-capitalist, and he was kicked out of the party early on for clashing with Hitler. And then later, his brother, Gregor Strasser, uh, who with Ernst Rome were killed in the United of the Long Knives in 1934. They had run the brown shirt, so this was a competing faction. Rome was gay. Uh, and pretty openly so. Hitler obviously didn't like that. And uh, Gregor Strasser was still forwarding a kind of softer anti-capitalism. They wanted a second revolution. And so these elements, now that the Nazi party's gone, not just can neo-Nazis reinterpret who the master race is, but they can also pick these different elements and have a great lineage. So this one movement has developed called Third Positionism. It comes out of the Strasserite faction of the Nazi party, and they're anti-capitalists. And the racial separatists are usually also into environmentalism and sometimes animal rights. Tom Metzger, who Isaac just mentioned, was the first major third positionist political leader. There were some intellectuals in the United States. And this idea, they want to unite with the left or with other racial and or with other racial separatists. They want they're because they're anti-capitalists, they're like, we should work with the left to overthrow the system. Or work with other racial separatists who are like, there's always overtures like to the Nation of Islam and Yeah, and I was going to say, um, what's his name? Uh, Willis Cardo, who who was a big leader with these people, also did that sort of fusionism and trying to work with like left and right. And also, um, you know, I think he even did like uh, conferences where he had like Louis Farrakhan and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah, Farrakhan has long played footsie. The the prior leader of Nation of, uh, of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, met with. There's a famous photo of George Lincoln Rockwell in the front seat and his lieutenants in this big black crowd. And then later, Farrakhan met with Tom Metzger at one point, and they were trying to cook up a deal to break up the United States into separate uh, racial states. So, I mean, I can certainly see a third position. You know, a multiracial fascism in the United States where you simply have different racially based fascist groups cooperating on a certain level. The groups may be homogenous. They cooperate and then they have a deal, whether this deal would ever actually come to be, kind of doesn't matter, you know, to have in the end a breakup areas into separatist areas. And as third positionism has gone on in uh, a, a while ago in the early aughts, one extremely decentralized version developed called the National Anarchists. And they they didn't even want separate racial states. They're like, we will have separate racial villages, right, with whatever, if you could create that or not. Uh, in a sense, they actually liked sundown towns, I, w- I would say, and, and segregation. But um, And their idea was very explicit, like, you will have a black village, we will have a white village, you should be a black national anarchist, we will be a white national anarchist, we all belong to the same movement, we can even come and visit together, you can visit my village, just just be gone by by nighttime or something, right? 
I was um, going to say, people forget was, all this, but like, if you were an anarchist at the time, I mean, they tried to infiltrate like anarchist spaces in the like Bay Area and whatnot. Oh yeah, I and personally, successful, I, I personally had to kick help kick them out of the New York Anarchist Book Fair. I mean, again, you're like, why are you into this weird stuff? Like, part of it is just because like we have to deal with this problem. Yeah, there was a group founded in uh, the Bay Area called Banna, and one in New York called Nada. One of the guys of whom, not just did he show up at Charlottesville as did one of these Latino neo-Nazis, but the NADA guy was arrested at 1-6 as part of the destruction of the media equipment. But anyway, I mean, it's no, I don't see, it's not, I think it'd be very easy to have a a, a black neo-Nazi group, a Latino neo-Nazi group, a white neo-Nazi group, or fascist group, or whatever they are, and just work together uh, on a, you know, keep a separate group and work together on common goals, and then have their idea at the end that they will establish a separate geographical area and yet still remain in alliance. I just see no, no internal contradiction, no practical contradiction if they could, um, you know, carry it out, and no theoretical contradiction in that. So that's what I think of. That's what we mean. I was originally going to write a book before Trump called "Unorthodox Fascism," and then it was like the rise of multiracial fascism. Um, thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. But I think as some of the interest, intellectual interest in the in the Trumpists goes back, like the neo-Nazis aren't really that interested in Trump anymore. Some of them like Patriot Front are like, we just don't care. Um, they'll go back to these more more unusual ideas like third positionism, fourth positionism sometimes that people around Dugan. And Dugan also espouses a multiracial idea. When he talks about Eurasia, even in Russia, a lot of the people in Russia aren't white. There's Muslims, people from the stands, people from the Caucasus, Uzbekistan's. Like these, these aren't white people, so it's already a multiracial idea. Um, they, we're going to see more of that again as people are tired of Trump and they realize Trump's just too moderate for them. He's never going to carry out these fashy things he was sort of saying in 2016. What do you think I, of our third positions? I, real real quick, I, I want to apologize for having a misspoke earlier and said multicultural it's, it's multiracial is a much it's better sort of the same thing in the end it's all good <laughs> but, but go on Isaac. i, I mean it, it, it is quite interesting uh what spencer's pointing out and it's all completely true because see these groups they have their commonality you know if we look at the threads of these different groups throughout the world anti-semitism is definitely one major thread uh whether it's in malaysia whether it's in latin america or um, you know, even in, even in, in parts of Africa and obviously in Europe, anti-Semitism is always going to be a part of it. And then besides that, you know, obviously there's you know deep homophobia. There's um, uh, uh, you know uh, attacks on the left, um, and so then they do have a very very uh, factors that do that that can help them work across those kind of racial lines. And um, and as far as what you were mentioning about about Dugan. It's interesting because in Russia, there is actually, you know, extreme nationalists that are uh, in favor of Putin. And then there, and then there is, uh, you know, uh, reports of actual Nazis that are fighting on the on the Russian side of the of the Ukrainian conflict, as well as there are also some on the Ukrainian side. But then there are also um, Russian Nazis that are anti-Putin because they say that uh, he's allowed too many immigrants from those um, from like the countries in Central Asia and so on. So then they have uh, different levels of uh, um, of extreme right right wing ideas in, in Russia itself, you know. Um, but uh, but but like as far as like Duganism, there actually I was reading something today about there's a guy named uh, Luke Michel out of uh, Belgium 
he's at, he calls himself a national communist. He's basically a, a national Bolshevik. He claims to be a Stalinist. And he's one of the main propagandists of pro-Russian um, viewpoint in Africa. And he's actually an advisor to several African regimes. So, and he used to be in like a extreme far right group in Belgium. So, you know, like we were mentioning before, I think that uh, it's it's not too far fetched for these groups to work across racial lines if it benefits their interest in one way or another. So, this multiracial fascism, it it absolutely could come to fruition in this country. That, David, that's, that's, David, that's clear. Duke, David Duke spends a lot of time now out of the country in Mexico, in Iran, because people like. An interesting article about this. They're not so interested in his white supremacist stuff, but they like the anti-Semitism, and he's a a loquacious and sophisticated quote unquote anti anti-Semite. And so, other people are interested in buying that part of his ideology, right? Um, I also wanted to mention when we when we talk about collaborations between true white white supremacists in the United States and people of color, like Tom Metzger did this. As Isaac said, he's gained some, some support. He gained support from some Latino groups. And in Eleanor Langer's book called The Hundred Little Hitlers, which is about um, Metzger and how some of his uh, followers killed an Ethiopian man named Mulugeta Sarah in Portland in the, I think in 1988, um, she talks about an account of him meeting with one of these Latino groups. And then she said, she asked him or someone else asked him, and they go, how can you do this? And he's like, oh, they're good guys. We'll gas them last. So this is always ideas like we can just cooperate until the very end and then maybe we'll get rid of you. But like that end never comes. So it gives at least an intellectual justification for this cooperation. And not only is Metzger infamous for for, for uh, bringing this, um, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, revolutionary, quote unquote, revolutionary Nazi ideas, but also he was the one who really coalesced the boneheads in the United States that were on the uprise in the 1980s. Um, because the thing is like, you know, that the, the early 80s, that was the heyday of, uh, of white power music in the UK, starting with Screwdriver, Brutal Attack, and bands of, of that sort that uh, had a movement called Rock Against Communism. And so what happened is that music spread all over Europe. And so then, uh, you know, neo-Nazi boneheads started springing up all over Europe Eventually, it got to Latin America. And then when it got to the U.S., they had different um, small grouplings all over the U.S. And the one that really coalesced them into a fighting uh, force um, for those ideas was actually Tom Metzger by setting up uh, the white Aryan resistance. And so then, you know, obviously, they were, um, they were, there was heavy, heavy battles, you know, between anti-fascist uh, skins at that time, you know, Sharp and and left-wing uh, skinheads in in, uh, in Portland and in different parts of the United States against these people. But Tom Metzger was definitely influential in that as well. Can I ask you a question, Isaac, with, with regards to all this? It, it sounds like you know a lot about the, um, the history of skinheads and whatnot. How did skinhead in our day and age become synonymous with neo-Nazis? You know, because like, to me, when I think skinhead, I think like, you know, people that were influenced by like Rasta culture and whatnot. And like, it wasn't originally associated with neo-Nazis. How did they, like, it seems like a good way of looking at the issue of entryism. So how did we come to uh, this thing where boneheads basically define what skinhead is to most people in our popular culture? Wait a minute. I just want to, 
Isaac, well, let's make clear that Isaac is a leading figure in Rash in the Red and Anarchist skinhead movement um, here in the United States, and I think internationally, aren't, aren't you, <laughs> Isaac? Um, so there's a reason I have, he I have knows- a lot of I have a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac has a lot of friends, but uh, there's a reason Isaac knows a lot about skinheads. <laughs> um, well, so 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 to answer your question, um, the reason why, unfortunately, uh, in the mass in, you know, in mass culture, there's that negative connotation is because, you know, as, as you have well pointed out, yes, it's going to definitely comes from reggae. It definitely comes from the influence of the Jamaican proletarians that went to work in the UK. And so in those working class neighborhoods, um, you know, they, they worked with and, and they, and they bonded with, and they went to the same clubs uh, with the white British working class. And so then those working class kids, they got into that fashion, they got into that music. I mean, there's just like a whole genre that's called skinhead reggae, um, you know, out of like 1969, 1970 and so on. But then when that movement tapered off because, um, you know, they grew older, uh, they got more into glam rock, they kind of grew out their hair and so on, like in 71, 72, then it pretty much tapered off. And so then when punk um, rose up, you know, after the Ramones went to England, then, you know, there was a clash, there was the pistols, um, and so on. And so then, you know, punk rock started in, in, in or rather got its, um, its big explosion out of England in 76, 77. So along with that, there was like a revivalist um, uh, second wave of skinhead. But then what ended up happening is unfortunately at that same time, there was a big economic crisis in England. And so then the National Front, which had been um, present in England for quite some time, um, they they basically started exploiting that and, and and seeing okay well you know maybe we can get these young working class white people to blame uh, their misfortune on the immigrants and so then you know not only did they get some of these these second wave of skins but then they also got some punks they also got some petty boys which are like um I guess the British version of like rockabillies um, and so in order to make propaganda for the, for that extreme right wing faction then um you know they decided to make their own bands right and so then since they were pretty much shunned from like mainstream punk rock and 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 mainstream um um you know music uh because of these like heinous views then they decided to make this rock against communism movement with bands like which they, they took and, that from they it was their response to rock against racism right yes yes correct exactly yes and so then um you know, so so what they did is basically they took the aesthetic factor of skinheadism as far as like, you know, the clothes, as far as the bombers, the booths, braces, um, things like that. And and somewhat of a musical aspect, because um, Rock Against Communism does sound a little bit like oil music, but it also has like uh, a lot of like, um, you know, heavy metal influence. Um, you know, it's it's more rockish, I guess, and with terrible, terrible like Nazi lyrics. So basically, their music is a is 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 a way to make propaganda for their movement, and they've been very successful at it. And they've had like you know pretty substantial uh, record labels that have made a lot of money for their movement. You know, and and that's what's also served served to get them a lot of people all over the world. And the interesting thing related to our discussion about rock against communism, it, it sort of acted like a, a bit of a, a front group or just like a, a name to disguise, like instead of using white power, you know, oi. 
but then that makes it easier for people of color to use that label, like especially far right, you know, Latinos in the U.S. or elsewhere. And so a lot, a much more diverse group of far right skinhead bands will define themselves as rack rack against communism, then would say I'm a neo-Nazi. And it, but it still has, it still comes from that and it's still set up that way to reflect neo-Nazi values. But that's just another way that um, what Nazis do can be picked up the way they do it can be picked up by other people and and given a life of its own because there's certainly no shortage of anti-communists in latin america because there were no shortage of communists there yeah i've but even I, heard I, that uh rac has made its way into like asian countries now which is oh yeah um, for sure and it, it it's been on no and not just now this has been ongoing since the 80s i mean you know in the 80s there was japanese boneheads that went to uh, england to be ian stewart of screwdriver and um you know they brought that back to japan you know they that there's bands of that nature in malaysia and and in some other countries as well all over latin america definitely um but like spencer was saying that is a very clever way for these people to not say you know instead of saying oh yeah well I, I'm, a, I'm a nazi they're like oh no i'm, a, I'm like into rock against communism you know how, how much um, of the out of curiosity how much of the rac rock against communism stuff was maybe helping to financially keep a lot of these people afloat uh, because I know these labels like resistance records, I think they made a lot more money than people would expect. Um, It seems like this stuff kept them afloat. Resistance was very profitable Um, in, in Britain. When we talk about Nazi skins being shock troops, that was definitely true with the national front, the group that really started recruiting them at first. And when screwdriver was originally part of a, a label associated with that, that, poured a lot of money into the national front and ultimately pissed the band off when they broke off partly because of this. So the problem is now you can't make that much, you know, who buys, who, you know, everyone streams stuff. So it's not so much the case. Yeah, now, I, I was going to say back in the, this is back in like the nineties, I guess, but like now it's a different game. Yeah. 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 Resistance and records made a huge amount of money. They had a big paid staff so much. So it was eventually bought by William Pierce, who was a major neo-Nazi leader, ran the national Alliance, inspired the Oklahoma city bombing. Yeah. The Turner diaries books. guy. Yeah. But I think he paid like a million dollars for the label or something. I can't remember. It was some very large amount of money. I was sort of taken, taken aback by how much that was. So yeah, that, that that movement used to really fund the music movement used to really fund help fund the political movement yes that's actually and one then, of we'll go on isaac sorry yeah and, and actually an, an interesting and weird thing about pierce is that he actually hated that like he like like he hated the music because he himself was into classical music and so then i think at some point he said that that music was like music for degenerates or something like that but that it made them money so yeah, the, the reception of the Nazi skins by the existing Nazi and white power groups in America and probably elsewhere was it, it, it's really tangential. A lot of them didn't like it. They listened to classical music, you know, some of the skins, they were skinheads at the end of the day, no offense, Isaac, and they would get drunk and beat each other up. This wasn't like the Nazis tried to portray themselves as like ultra conservatives. They'd wear like suits and, you know, you know, drugs were totally, you know, verboten and stuff. So only certain leaders accepted them. It took a long time until they all realized this was the new generation of their political movement. But Metzger partly was so successful. He was an early major figure to accept them while others resisted it. Right. Because how, how a- important is someone like Metzger to understanding the, the current neo-Nazi movement? I think he's he's quite important. He was definitely one of the smartest tactically in the 80s and 90s. He 
he approached things differently. He was a, revolu a revolutionary who wanted to publicly organize, whereas like Pierce, who was also a revolutionary, but he was like, join my membership-based organization. And when the, when the time comes, we'll be the vanguard or something, right? It's very inward looking. So, I mean, I think Metzger, he's really been not, memor not really remembered by the alt-right, which he himself dismissed. He only died in 2020. I think he died election day in 2020. Um, but I think he set up a series of ideas that are going to reverberate for a long time amongst American national socialists and white supremacists on how but to be. He was big into the revolutionary. Yes. So his organization was smashed after the SPLC sued him, as I mentioned earlier. Some of people skins associated with him, Nazi skins, killed Mulugeta Sarah. And then the SPLC sued on the family's behalf. It was an innovative kind of civil lawsuit and bankrupted him. He had an organization and it bankrupted him. So after that, he could still function, though, and put out his newspaper and stuff. He moved and said, along with James Mason, they did it sort of together. Let's uh, let's espouse leaderless resistance and lone wolf attacks. And this had this had been cooked, been batted around at the same time by other elements like Lewis Beam, a white supremacist who wrote the famous essay, Leaderless Resistance. So they, he was like, well, don't join an org. The orgs are, the organizations are totally infiltrated. We'll get busted with a membership list. Act on your own. Don't act with other people. There's different forms of this. And can anyone, there's a whole argument, can anyone truly be a lone wolf? But, um, you know, act on your own. They, they won't be able to catch you if you're not, you know, if, if there's nobody else to rat you out you can go pull your action off. Um, and so, yeah, he, it was important, not just that, but in, in the shift to, uh, to individual, I call them individual actors, you know, individual terrorist actors. And, and I also think that, that as part of that, um, Nazi groups, more, more so in Europe than in the United States, but somewhat here as, as well, um, you know, they're trying to use different tactics in order to get people. Like, for example, like now, um, rock Against Communism is not as influential musically among young people than it was like in the 80s and 90s of, among young people of like the right wing sectors, right? So let's say in, in Europe, in Italy, and in some other countries, they actually have Nazi rap. You know, you would have never thought that something like that would have existed, but it exists and it actually has fans because they're continuously trying to find new ways of getting people into their ideas, right? Yeah, I, I was going to um, say that's even true with the, uh, you mentioned Casa Pound earlier, that Italian group. I, they had their own like in-house band and, and they did, th they would like do concerts where people beat themselves with belt buckles. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they seem to get into every genre of music. My favorite right. is Nazi, Nazi dub reggae. That's a thing? <laughs> Panzer SS, go go find them online, Nazi dub reggae. But also, you know, especially in the age of an alt-right, it's irony. It's okay, they don't have any. They at the beginning they try to say, oh, it's not rock and roll, that's black music, it's football chants. But they gave that up. They're like, we don't care. Like, what is consistency? What is ethics? Let's do what works. And so they would start just going like everyone listens to rap. Let's like have Nazi rap. And also there's a, you know, it in the, this day and age or since the the mid um teens, you know, there's a sense of irony about stuff, right? It is and it isn't. Ha, 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 ha. How can we have a Nazi rap band? But at the end of the day, they're serious or, or they draw you in through their ironic Well, that acts as good cover funny for them things. too, right? Because they can always cover. say, oh, you know, we're not serious even when they are, you know. Yeah, yeah. How could you be a Nazi doing rap? And maybe I am and maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm serious that I like rap music and maybe I'm not, you know. So it all becomes this jumbled thing until people fall down the rabbit hole into 
whatever's at the ground beneath the rabbit hole, I guess, hit hit that. And that's Nazism. And this is the Andrew England strategy, which was very effective for a while. But, I mean, you know, and also if we look at uh, at Europe, for example, you know, at least since at least the 80s, Nazi groups in Europe, they have been um, trying to copy certain aspects of, uh, of the organizing and the look of anti-fascist activists in Europe. So they actually have like, different uh, Nazi trees that are called autonomous nationalists, like autonomous nationalists. So they'll wear all black, right? Uh, they cover their faces. Some of them even wear kofiyas or they wear like Che Guevara shirts and they'll carry like Palestinian flags. And unless you're looking at like their pin for the average person, it's, it's, it's difficult to tell if they're anti-fascist or they're fascist unless you see their banners or hear their chants. So, you know, that, that's another way that they're trying to confuse people so that they could get more people to their side. Yeah, this was this was a big trend for quite a while. It sort of faded out, but you'll still see similar things where, especially third position fascists, most recently Matthew Heimbeck is the most famous who had the traditionalist worker party at Charlottesville. And then there was a scandal and now he's like in the, I, I forget the name, Social Nationalist Front, I think is the name of them. Um but they some, some want to recruit the left or recruit leftists, and they have some issues that are similar, like anti-Israel has you know their version of anti-Zionism, which is really a coded anti-Semitism. Sometimes they're legitimately interested in ecology. Sometimes they're legitimately anti-capitalist, and they take these ideas and try to, and sometimes even take like slogans or imagery from the left, and then try to reach out to the left or work with the left or in any way make make a feint in that way or simply get beyond traditional far-right imagery, get beyond the swastikas, get beyond the people will see them and react and be like, oh, you're on the far-right, I don't like you. Um, so we see this sort of stuff continually. In fact, the biggest fascist rally in the United States before Charlottesville was in 2002, and it was an anti, anti-Israel rally held by William Pierce's National Alliance in DC. And I think 300 people came. Uh, it was it was partly to uh, work uh, benefit from the energy, the anti-Zionist energy around the Second Antifada, but also their line was the Jews did 9-11 or Zionists did 9 I'm sure they said Zionists did 9-11. Uh, and that was the largest rally before Charlottesville by open, open neo-Nazis. I, I got to ask you a question in that regard, because I cover Israel and Palestine a lot mm-hmm. on this show, and I'm very pro-Palestinian. So how, how would you suggest people that are interested in, you know, defending the rights of Palestinian uh, understand that you have these sort of entryists that are using uh, the Palestinian cause to promote anti-Semitism and neo-Nazianism. Um, how do we walk that line and know the difference between actual, you know, pro-Palestinian activism and these people that are just sort of, you know, holding a, a Palestinian flag, but then pushing these really noxious ideas? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm I'm finishing the edits on two books right now, one of which is called uh, Looking Left at Anti-Semitism, Anti-Semitism on the Left, Right, and In Between in the United States. But the really, the very, and I want to say first, there are people who are legitimately Palestine activists who hold anti-Semitic ideas as well. It's not just all entryism. But look, the easiest thing is this, educate yourself about anti-Semitism, educate yourself about its narratives and images, and then look when people use that in your Palestine solidarity work. It's really that simple. Uh, before closing out, and by the way, I wanted to say to Isaac, I'm so glad you used the term um, bonehead because I think that's what we should always call neo-Nazi skinheads. They're all everyone who 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 hears the term skinhead. Most of the time, people are talking about boneheads, not you know the original skinheads. So 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and 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 honestly, and and I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I think that the that the reason why people don't really say that too much is because really the only people that know about that are people that are in that subculture or like near to that subculture. Like the general population is not going to know what a bone is. You know, and, that, that, and and you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things where like everywhere you be. You just pretty much have to give them like a short rundown of skinhead history so they can really understand that those people are, you know, imposters. Yeah, I'd like to uh, take this moment to apologize to Isaac for not putting that in the article, but it was exactly that. Like most people just don't understand these what this term is or the intricacies of skinhead culture. I I had um, just two more questions, and I think, Spencer, you may be able to answer these Um I guess the first is you, you talked about how these things like resistance records made money for, you know, the the precursor to the alt-right, the neo-Nazi right in America. One thing that I get asked a lot is where is the money coming from when it comes to these groups? Because I do know there's people with money in the movement, people like uh, there, there was this Klan lawyer, um, Sam Dixon, who I think yes. gave money to Eric Stryker. So, I mean, there are these sort of people with money that sort of operate in the background. They're not, you know, someone like Dixon is not as well known as Richard Spencer, but they're providing money to the movement. Um, I don't, can you comment on that? Are there, who, who are like, who's the money men? All right. Yes, no, maybe so. I, I just looked this up. I want to say Pierce paid a quarter million dollars, not a million dollars for a resistance record, but still this Nazi is a quarter million dollars. Um, I sure don't. I, you know, these movements don't need money. Of course, there's always some rich people. Um, Spencer was where Richard Spencer, the evil Spencer used to call him, and like me, the good Spencer, uh, used to be funded by a wealthy, a wealthy figure. But like these movements, just like anarchists and anti-fascists, don't need big pockets behind them. They're organizing locally. Websites don't cost money anymore. You don't even need money for publications. You know, um, people give money out of their own pockets. You know, they stay with each other when they travel. I, I think people are too fixated. Um, on where the money's coming from. Often I say, think about a church, a, a church in a poor area. Nobody's funding this church. The, the people who believe insofar as they need money, maybe they need a building, maybe they need a pastor, maybe the pastor's paid and maybe they're not or part-time. And the, the congregants offer their own money up to do it and doesn't require a lot of money. These social movements don't require a lot of money. And it's not that there never are deep pockets behind things. Like there were deep pockets behind Milo Yiannopoulos and stuff, but there doesn't have to be and I think people get, they waste their time when they're always like, somebody's funding this, you know, there's somebody's behind this. And that also um, leads us astray in our analysis because it creates an assumption that these movements wouldn't exist without money, that that in a sense, they're not true movements. There's no real appeal to people, right? That, that, that they're bought, they're bought by somebody rich. And in fact, they do, they do talk to people. They do have a legitimate appeal amongst people. And it's not just, these movements are not just the product of some fringe rich rich person, but but really they're pulling off ideas that are deep within our culture. Like even if most, even white Americans aren't neo-Nazis, aren't segregationists, don't want to like kill trans people or whatever, these really vicious movements are based on milder versions of these ideas that are extremely widespread in our culture. So there doesn't have to be deep pockets. And it's it's certainly the exception. It's a small exception that we do find deep pockets funding things. And I've never seen deep pockets fund neo-Nazis, outright neo-Nazis. Um, I think Pierce had a big membership organiza based organization. He had been a professor and an engineer. 
uh, and then he got a lot of money from the membership. Uh, you know, Willis Cardo also was able to accumulate a significant amount of money, but these are the exceptions, and some of that legitimately came from their base. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these figures end up trying to build sort of nest eggs for themselves after, you know, uh, oh, yeah, a sure. few years. Like a lot, I mean, they're sad people. Let's be honest. I mean, it's like a lot of orgs. After a while, you've done, you've said and done what's what's innovative, and you've got these followers, and then you just sort of like the money keeps coming in. You don't have to. You just keep saying the same thing again that people like. But that happens all over in all different kinds of social, you know, groups. You see people tour with self help stuff, and they're just regurgitating. They're writing the same book over and over again, right? Like kicking me. You're like, oh, this is a shtick that people respond to. I'll just do this for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, it, it, isn't that um, reportedly with the guy from Patriot Front that uh, the, the the members in that group, they have to pay like exorbitant fees to be part of that group and they have to like pay for the stickers that they put up and like buy their own uniforms and patches and all this stuff. And a lot of that uh, money actually goes to the leader. Yeah, and, it's money. Know, and, and that's okay. happened with like a lot of these groups throughout the years, you know, with with, uh, with the descendants of like um, of the American Nazis that happened as well. So, yeah, yeah these things become money making enterprises. The, the second era clan in the 1920s was like this. It was almost uh, set up like a multi-level marketing scheme where you would apply to the national headquarters to get the right to recruit clans members and you paid them. And then the members you recruited paid you. So yeah, at the end there's there's a lot, and the far right's filled with scam artists. It's like a weird thing, especially you get into the sovereign citizens. You can't tell if it's a political movement or just like a financial grift. So there's there's times. I, mean, I still don't understand what what the sovereign. I mean, these are the people that talk about admiralty, admiral law, and mm -hmm. gold fringes on flags, right? The next show, the next that movement actually <laughs> comes out of white white supremacists, out of this guy William Potter Gale. Who comes out of this white supremacist movement of the '60s? It's just a long and complicated, and lots of names and stuff. But um, yeah, that that started as a white supremacist idea. But those people, like, they have this whole idea, so it becomes apolitical at times that they can pass fraudulent checks and just the laws don't apply to them, so they can scam money and all kinds. I don't of have to use a driver's license. All <laughs> right. right. Yes, that's that's part of it. So the there last... is actually, oh sorry, uh, there, there is actually a movement of that nature which has been in in um, in the news at least quite a, quite a few times within the last couple of years in Germany. That's called the Reichberger, which um, you know what what they what uh, what they're saying is that um, the the Federal Republic of Germany is an illegal structure that was set up by the Allies. And so that the original German Reich ended in 1918. So therefore, they don't know any allegiance to current Germany. They don't have to pay any taxes, and that they're citizens of, you know, of the empire that ended. And so uh, they've actually had a lot of trouble with um, with the German government, you know. And they've caught them like stockpiling weapons. And there's been like, um, you know, some people from uh, noble families that have been involved in these kinds of groups. So this is not just in the U.S., it's all over the world, really. I think even in Brazil, there's groups like that as well. Yeah, it's spread all over. The, the most interesting to me are the Russian sovereign citizens who don't recognize the current government. I I believe they think the I can't remember if it's the czarist government or the communist government that they recognize as the real one. The, um, the Reichsberger in Germany don't recognize a liberal or Nazi government. They want the like second Reich that ended in World War One is the one they think is legitimate. So yeah, and these ideas have spread. You you find them, there's black versions in the United States, black sovereign citizens, 
There's uh, keep hearing pop popping up things about indigenous sovereign citizens, both in the Canada, the U.S. and in mostly Canada and Alaska. Um, and so, yeah, this idea spread from its white supremacist, really anti-Semitic origins, again, all over the world. And and we consider this so moderate, we didn't include it in the Nazis of color article. Right. But there's there's all kinds of far right movements amongst non-white people. And, and they have all kinds of weird ways in which that they these uh, movements have been spread and as they morph and change. The the last thing I was going to ask you about, uh, Spencer, and I, I don't even know if you have thoughts on it, but everyone's going to say, why didn't you bring it up? Because it was timely. Is um, I mentioned this whole thing with this uh, pundit, wannabe commentator, Richard Hanania, being out as a neo-Nazi. I guess he has written articles for like the New York Times and Washington Post. Um, I even see like some people at major publications, people like David Frum, defending him and saying, oh, well, he said he was sorry. I mean, what do you make of this um, story. And I mean, I, I get if you just think, well, it doesn't surprise me. This seems to happen, you know, occasionally. Well, I didn't mention him because I wrote the original article in May. <laughs> so it's August. So Isaac and I did. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll include this in my, in my real, what I want to be a takeaway from this is like when people run into these, these kinds of people in these groups, we want people just not to miss a beat, you know, it's usually like when people run into this, it's a record scratching. Um, and and we wrote this long article. Partly it was long because we want to explain every little thing so people would get it and not just subject to it. But partly we just want people when they see this stuff just to be like clock it, like they'd clock anything else and move right along. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really... I'm just not surprised. Yeah, he's just another one. I mean, and as we mentioned in the article, well, we're talking about neo-Nazis, a very specific group. Like there are many, well, many I guess, Latino I, white supremacists. What I'm asking, are you surprised that someone like that would end up getting published in places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or like, oh, yeah. Oh, just on its own? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, usually I was heard it was an open secret about who he was, and usually people don't. I mean, their popularity usually stops at Breitbart, and maybe they'll have some appearances on Fox. So that's a very high level of penetration that you don't see. I mean, you rarely – I guess I can think of one or two examples. If you were like a Marxist or an anarchist when you were younger, you rarely ended up in a high level in the Democratic Party or something. We almost – of, of, yeah. of Van Jones was one of the few people who did that. And he sticks out like, I think the only one right. I can really think of um, one or two more movementy, but yeah. So yeah, that's, that's actually quite impressive. I'm actually impressed by the level of, um, of uh, uh, the level he was able to get to, but there were so many people in the alt-right. I mean, we will only understand 10, 20, 30 years in the future, how, how many, you know, white supremacists were in the alt-right and how influential that was on modern conservatism and how many people were able to move from really the most extreme part of the white supremacist right and right into the mainstream right while saying basically the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and what, what concerns me about it is seeing, like I said, people are, there are certain people trying to defend him now. And I'm, well, I'm just, yeah, I feel, I'm worried about, do you ever worry about, these ideas becoming more and more normalized. I mean, that's more generally, not just with this case, but. I'm so shocked at the level that they're normal. I mean, you asked us in 2016, would these ideas hit this level of normalization? I think everyone would pretty much say no. Like that was like a worst case scenario and projected into the future. So 
Uh, this is a new normal, right? I mean, we've we've entered, and this is not just in the United States. This is around the world. I mean, in in Europe, the first xenophobic far right party, I think, was elected at the end of the '90s in Austria, the Freedom Party. And it well, has, I mean, look at Italy now with Maloney. So, I mean, this stuff is all over Europe. It's long before Trump in Europe, it was established. And these parties generally get something like 20-ish percent of the vote in many, many different countries. So in a sense, America is just following them. And of course, there's stuff Modi in Brazil and to some extent Netanyahu in Israel and uh, Bolsonaro out now, but in Brazil. So this is a a, a global phenomenon and and this is not going to go away anytime soon. You know, the old the old dominance of neoconservatism, neoliberalism amongst the right uh, seems to be a done deal in most places. Well, I want to thank you again, Spencer Sunshine and Isaac for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Um, I am, uh, look at my website, spencersunshine.com. I'm um, on the socials. I'm most active on Twitter. I'm on Mastodon, Facebook. I have an email list you can sign up with. uh, And you should um, check out my forthcoming books in 2024. Um, The Origins and Afterlife of James Mason's Siege, uh, Neo-Nazi Terrorism and Countercultural Fascism, as well as what I mentioned before, Looking Left at Anti-Semitism. Oh, and you should not forget to sign up and uh, give me money. I'm, I do a little moment for capitalism. I have a Patreon. It's one of the big ways I make my living. For two bucks a month, you can read exclusive articles and help me with all this sort of esoteric research. This article took a long time to write, and you know I made probably less than minimum wage in doing so. So uh, feel free if you have if you have some extra extra change rustling around your pocket. Until next time. You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.